Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Chris Rudell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, Jackson? Nothing much, Christopher. Glad to be here for the season finale. Oh, yeah. This was a great way to end the episode, or end the season, I would say. Um, our guest was Danielle O'Connell. She was the Director of Emerging Technology at Skanska, and the talk was sort of around this idea or the beginning of this idea of digital twins from an owner perspective. We've had other guests talk about digital twins, but we look at um, from an owner perspective, it can be quite cumbersome. There's, you know, a long ways to go and there's a lot, lot to try to figure out. We talk about things like culture and even education, but I thought overall it was a good way to round out the season. We've had some really great guests uh, and this one starts to pull a lot of those other conversations together. Uh, what did you think about the the chat? I thought that this was, you know, kind of a perfect cherry on top for our season. Um, you know, Danielle O'Connell has been a trailblazer in the industry. It's led her to be, you know, a director at Skanska, which, you know, I told my wife about the chat we had yesterday and she doesn't know she's not in, you know, the industry at all. And she knew who Skanska was. Um, so what I really liked about it is we brought up digital twins, which I know has been talked about on previous seasons. Um, and usually when you think of digital twins, it's really just for us in the AEC industry to help us, you know, build buildings better. But in reality, all of that data should be transferred over to the owner and it should be accurate and it should be a true representation of what their building is, you know, all the way down to the last bolt. Um, so we, we talked about that a lot, as well as just the general culture of the industry, which has been also a theme this season. The theme uh, was disruption towards the beginning of the season, and it's, it's kind of transitioned into a little bit of culture as well, um, specifically around, you know, the relationship between, you know, architects and contractors, um, and she gave some great insight there. So I think it's going to be a great episode and a uh, great end into the season. I would agree. There's a lot of talk or focus on the idea of the end user, um, somebody that perhaps when we're working, we, we may lose sight of. Uh, but it was a great end to the season. It was a great episode. Uh, we hope you get to listen to it and enjoy it. And that is a wrap. Check back for a new season um, and always be on the lookout for new stuff from the AEC Disruptors. So joining us today is Danielle O'Connell, Director of Emerging Technology at Skanska. How are you doing, Danielle? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Very good. Uh, so before we start, I'm, you know, we briefly met and we talked about this idea of digital twins from the owner perspective. Before we get going, I'd like to know a little bit about you, kind of what do you do at Skanska and, you know, what, what made you want to come on and talk about this topic Okay, sure. Yeah. So I have been in this industry for 13, going on 14 years um, in various roles really around technology, but I, I studied architecture in school and I got out of school and I said, I think I need to go back to school to be a civil engineer so I can work in construction because I had this passion for the built environment. 
And I loved just seeing buildings go up and, and learning all about that. So um, as I said, I started in, in more like a, a pre-construction project coordination role and I dabbled in all different parts of um, the building project. And then I got to be a BIM and BBC manager when they were just becoming a thing, which was really exciting. And we were, you know, trying to meet owner requirements. And at the time, and even still today, like owners needed to be educated on what they were even asking for, right? Like, what is this 3D model going to do for me? And how am I going to use it? How are my team going to use it? Um, and so that's really, you know, where a lot of my passions lie. And it's just having grown up and, and been part of that and, and that evolution of BIM and BBC. And then now what has become really like this emerging tech space. Um, and in this role that I'm in now. So while I'm passionate about, you know, building models, how we use models, like how do we take that even further? How do we look at the things that we do every day, right? The RFI and the, the program management, the project management processes, how do we become more efficient by implementing technology or leveraging the model or laser scanning or, you know, the, the, it, the list is really endless. Um, but one thing I think that's been interesting and what brings me here is that, as I said before, like there's this need to really educate the owners that we're working for. I think the, um, you know, the requests for proposal are getting more complex. The owner's asks are getting more complex. So for us as builders to truly understand and truly understand how the, the owners are gonna use that data at the end of the project is huge. And so, um, we had a contact, we hosted uh, Skanska recently, and we, I got to lead a, and moderate a panel with three amazing owners who talked a lot about this. And it was really enlightening to me about the things that they were focused on. And so I thought it would be a great discussion. Um, There's so many opportunities to partner with our design teams, um, with our, even our subcontractors. We don't talk about that a lot, but I, I look for opportunities to do that as well. And, and really understand how this idea of digital twin can fit into this overall tech landscape as we're you know, broadening our horizons. So that was a lot, but I think I covered uh, it. I'm really curious about um, you, know, you being a BIM manager when you know, BIM was first coming about, what kind of pushback you got? Because there's still pushback you know, um, a few years ago I was on a job that was exclusively paper drawings and the only one who had access to a model was the architect. Um, and that was because, you know, the people who I was with did not want to have the model. So what was that like? It was interesting. I remember, um, so at the time we did a lot of like public K through 12 type work too, where it's filed subject. So looking at subcontractors who don't have maybe the modeling capabilities in house, I think it was enlightening in that our, our duct contractors is still today, were far ahead of us as were our, our steel fabricators. But um, I remember there was this one project that I worked on that I'll, I'll give you as an example. It showed kind of where it is just diverse across the project. We were an IPD light project. We all lived in the same room for about six months. And we had our, our subs, we had our design team, um, structural engineer, our, you know, our superintendents would visit. And um, our, our owner said to us, can we do our structural reviews electronically? And that was like, everyone's mind was blown. We had to set up work terminals in our structural engineer's office. We offered to do that in our architect's office. We had one on site and our structural engineer was on board 100%. But our design team, our, our architect at the time was like, 
we should print out the drawings we still want to do piece drawing review on paper. So we had, you know, this very like tech advanced project owner, but yet we had different people even among the, our own team that wanted to do things different ways. Um, and as you said, it's still a challenge. It's, it's still like, it, it depends on who you're working with, where you're working. Um, you're gonna have contractors who are leaps and bounds ahead of, of others, right? And that's just the nature of the business. We have, um, you know, clients who think it costs more to do BIM, right? But really, it's it's the way that we work now. And but we even encounter architects sometimes that say, you know, we're, we're a CAD shop, we're a 2D shop. Uh, and, and I remember, too, that they may not be as prominent now, but I've seen a lot of new, like, um, companies come out even during COVID that are helping support those, like, BIM and VDC efforts. So maybe it's not necessarily like just the modeling part of it now, but it's like looking at the 45D, you know, like all the D components that come after it, that the companies that are doing it just maybe don't have the bandwidth in house. Um, but yeah, I could talk, I could talk for days about <laughs> the, the different things that I've seen there. You know, it's interesting because I think it leads into this talk. When we set up the podcast way back when, we thought about having something that was applicable to all parties. Um, but the owner perspective is one that we have probably neglected the most. And so I think that's what's interesting about we keep pushing different technologies, uh, maybe on one part of the industry. Uh, but at the end of the day, it always ends with the owner. Uh, one of our recent guests was Paul Wintour, and he put something on LinkedIn about, you know, what is the ideal BIM workflow for you? And when you looked at all of the comments, a lot of the comments, mine included, all revolved around like, what is the owner asking for? The ideal process, no matter what we want to do, is what the owner wants. Um, you know, if the owner asks for, you know, a, a level 500 model, that's what they're going to get. If they don't, if they ask for a 100, that's what they're going to get. Um, so I think educating the owner is a, is a smart thing. And it really comes from our side because our side being the, maybe the AEC, uh, not the O because we are the ones that are actively trying to do it because we're trying to make our own jobs a little more efficient or right. get a little better. Um, so I think it's important and I think it's exciting, an exciting conversation. When we first met, you mentioned um, when we were talking about how do we have this conversation with owners and we started to look at the culture and um, how, you know, talk a little bit about that. When we're looking at, you know, I know we're doing it here at Applied Software. I'm sure Skanska is as well. We start to talk about being more innovative, looking at creating an innovative culture. How do you see that applying to the owner side? And is it relevant for helping, say, push the whole industry forward? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point just about you, you mentioned like we do the things that the owner asks us to do, but I think there's still part of that owner education there too. So I think one thing we can do is lead by example, right? So if they see, if our owners see things that we're doing at, as design teams, as contractors that are, are innovative or cutting edge or just creating more efficiencies, because at the end of the day, right, we're looking to save them costs and we're looking to save schedule on our projects. So um, I think, I think we do that, but I think we also look to see for them, like what's, what's their, what drives their business. And we heard a lot about this again, from that owner panel I mentioned before, but they are so focused on, you know, it could be making money for their organizations, but what I heard loud and clear from them was that they are focused so much on the end user. Right. And I think we sometimes forget that because we're trying to get 
out of there before the users are, are coming in, right? On any typical construction project. And even, you know, I'm thinking like post-construction, we've opened this beautiful space and we're trying to go in and get finished photos. And there's so much coordination that happens so that we can do that. Well, there's not a million people walking through the space and we're not, you know, um, invading privacy in any way. So I think it, it's just taking a different look at that. And um, I had this experience that when I, I worked for a tech company in Cambridge and we, we built the space and we actually got to sit in these comfortable loungy chairs and walk. And we watched these people as they we opened the doors, like walk through and experience the space. And that was like one of the most magical moments of my career. I remember them being like, oh, you know, like, and, and they're seeing it for the first time. They really didn't enter it throughout the entire project. And so I think, you know, being able to appreciate that end user side of things is gonna help us to help our owners, right? And to, and to help educate them. And, and there are gonna be so many innovators. We find it at Skanska, like there are innovators who came out of the woodwork during COVID. They were, you know, all over the place. People, you know, in such a big organization too that you've never maybe even seen them or, or heard their name. And they had this idea that could just be scaled across the entire organization for us to address like what was happening. And I think owners can do that too. And they have the same type of people, I'm sure, amongst all of their, you know, their workforce. So um, I think we just, we help, we encourage them, we teach them about the things that we're doing, what we're finding are successful and, and help them to be innovative as well. The end user component is something I think maybe on our side, we lose sight of, because um, I did have a similar experience where we did a lot of um, worship spaces and it would happen to be one of the churches we did was close to my family home. And so I attended a service one day and uh, seeing it through that perspective was totally different than, you know, when we're just building it, we're designing it, it's always empty and cold, but then seeing people actually using it, seeing people, you know, in that case, practice faith. Uh, it is a kind of an empowering thing for the designer to, to be able to see. Um, I do think some of us are better than others at keeping the end user in mind, but uh, I do think if we start to adapt for us to help the owner, maybe we need to take on what they do. And if their end goal is always the end user, uh, I think that's important. And it kind of goes to uh, maybe helping us as uh, AEC professionals in our own culture when we're trying to build our own innovative culture, thinking through, okay, well, ultimately we're trying to serve an owner who is trying to serve an end user. What do we need to instill in our own culture now that can carry through to the end? The idea of, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, um, you know, you both are from the construction side. I'm from the design side now. Uh, it always seemed contentious. It still continues at times to seem contentious yet. For us to be able to help an owner, that relationship needs to be pretty cohesive and we need to be able to work together in order to educate. Because if it's just the contractor educating the owner, the, the architect's going to have certain feelings or vice versa. You know, how do you think that part of the puzzle um, needs to fit together so that on our side, we are working together so that we can help push that owner forward? so that they then can start to ask for more sophisticated things or do more sophisticated uh, projects. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a challenge in contractual language even right now. Um, but what I'm hoping to see is that there's this whole, you know, everyone's focusing on, on data and data strategy, right? Like there's this need to share data across projects. And that 
could be data from models, that could be through our coordination process. But I think if we start to just talk to our partners in different ways, um, you know, not just through that contractual relationship with our owners, then we can leverage, like, we're, we're probably trying to do the same thing, right? We're probably all, you know, have AR and VR headsets that we're, we're trying to leverage, we're trying to figure out a way. And I think there's just so many opportunities if we just start talking to each other more that we can help. And contracts, language applied, you know, and maybe this is, maybe that's part of the answer is that we push for, for different contract language, right? Not every project's gonna be IPD. Um, you know, there, I, I've seen owners here who are really pushing the envelope when it comes to even CM at risk projects, where they're really, really encouraging that collaboration to happen early on, where the, the contractors brought on board, they wanna build a relationship. But I, I think, yeah, more than anything, we can't just like operate in our vacuum. Like we're all, our go end goal should all be the same. And maybe it's, I don't know what the name of the session is, but maybe that's something that we need to focus on more at the beginning of the project. Like I remember thinking the, Throughout the project, like there was never, um, someone didn't come to me and share with me what the design intent was. And this is, I'm thinking back to when I was a BIM manager, as, uh, even a project manager on site. If I took a minute to understand what the design intent was, I would have so much more appreciation for all the RFIs that I'm sending over to the design team. Like answer this, this doesn't make sense. Um, you know, like I think just, there has to be that that connection and that that appreciation, and at the end of the day, it's just going to help our owners be better and us to all build better buildings together, right? We're all going for that same end product. The contract side, I think, is interesting because I feel like we um, we keep adopting technologies, we're testing them out, we're doing whatever, but we always hit that one roadblock, which ends up being around the contract and and around insurance. Cause it's been almost 10 years now, believe it or not, I, I got a, a master's in building structure and facility management. And we talked a lot about IPD and how it was the future. But then we also talked about the issue with IPD is that we're running into contractual language problems. We're running into the insurance hasn't caught up. And so we had some of these things that maybe were outside of our um, control that we're still driving forward. So does it, if, if we can't get around that right away, is it just building more trust between the contractor and the architect so that that is a more cohesive unit that then aids the owner? That would be awesome. I think if, you know, if they're open to it, I, I'm seeing it a lot now, even where we have relationships with uh, large firms who are coming in and presenting during some of our, our BD power, hour, we call it, where we are educating anyone that will tune in um, to learn about what are the new norms that we're seeing in office space as we as we go back, right? As we go back to work. Um, so I think there's those opportunities, they exist. It's just maybe we have to tap into different people. Maybe it's, you know, our I think our project management teams from the construction side tend to do a really good job of building relationships with the people that they work with in the field. Um, and some of us are, are removed from that. Like, you know, I think for me in my role, I touch a lot of different projects on the surface, but, um, and I have relationships with people within my organization, but I think if we could leverage some of those relationships that already exist and, and start to build that trust, that would have really helped. Um, because yeah, we can't, we're going to be limited to our, our contracts for the foreseeable future, right? There's going to be a big push industry-wide to get those to, 
to be amended. Um, so let's figure out another way to tap into what we already have. Chris and I have talked a lot about the combative relationship between contractors and designers. I mean, we live it out every day doing this podcast together. Mm-hmm. You know, if we weren't thousands of miles away, we'd, you know, wouldn't be friends. We wouldn't be friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I came from the subcontractor side. I, I, I did spend some time with the general contractor, but that was my internship. And I mainly just picked up trash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I really have to do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but whenever I was with the subcontractor, I felt like there was a real disconnect. And I, for more context, I worked for a mechanical contractor. And I felt like there was a real disconnect between the subcontractors and the designers and that the general contractor played kind of a middleman between the two. Um, How do you think we can help break that down to where the subcontractors and the general contractors have a more direct relationship holistically with the design team? Yeah, that's a great point. I was just talking to somebody about this last week. We, we as contractors, I, I don't think do a great job of, like we obviously build relationships with ourselves, but for some reason, I don't think it's come to the point where we're like tapping into ourselves for their expertise on even like this emerging tech scale, right? We know that they can uh, build duct and, and they can figure out ways to be more efficient in the field, whether it's using... Um, a total station to lay out, whatever it is, right? But we're not, um, for some reason, we're, I think we're missing the boat where we're connecting our subs to our, our design partners. And I think it's that same, you know, mutual respect. We have trusting relationships. We use a lot of the same subcontractors like project after project because we built that relationship with them. And I think it's just being more inclusive um, you know, I've seen like where we bring subcontractors on board for like design assist projects where that's been a little bit more successful. Um, so maybe we treat each of our, you know, each of our projects or each of our relationships as we do our design assist projects because we're really relying on our contractors in that case for their expertise in a different way, right? And they have to work with the design team. Oftentimes uh, they're stamping drawings that our, our subs are putting together. So um Maybe that's the approach. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I have the answer, but I, I'd love to to talk more about it because I think it's it's hugely important and, and it's a myth. Yeah, I feel like you could definitely do an entire podcast just on that um, mm-hmm. subject itself. And you brought up design assist. You know, ev- I was never on a design assist project, but it always felt like I was <laughs> because of <laughs> uh huh because of all of the extra work it felt like my detailers had to put in. And like I said, it felt like there was kind of a wall between us and the architect and engineer. Like I never even saw the architect or engineer on my last project, like never saw them once face to face. It was all through, you know, the uh, GC. So it's definitely a wall that it it would be best to break it down. (laughs) Well, I think it goes to, you know, we're still, you know, we're we're talking about how do we help the owner? And I think that starts with letting the expert be the expert. And I think it's really what you're talking about, Danielle, um, in that right now, I think we're still worried about liability and all sorts of different things that even on the design side, I mean, the contractors are excellent at managing a project yet 
on the design side, we will still try to reinvent the wheel on how to manage the exact same project without trying to learn from the contractor on ways, even what technology do you use to manage? I mean, something as simple as that. So instead, of, we're too busy trying to reduce our liability, uh, you know, not get sued and, you know, find our place in the industry. And so as a result, we're not letting the expert be the expert. And I think for us to even get to where ultimately we are helping make a more sophisticated owner, it, you know, it goes back to that very first thing we started talking about was developing these innovative cultures. Well, part of that is this idea of continuous improvement and learning. And so for us to be able to help an owner, all of our side of the industry really needs to start to adopt that mantra of continuous improvement, learning, and then sort of stepping outside and saying, okay, you're really good at this and I'm gonna let you do that. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC MEP and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Uh, I've said it on other podcasts that I'd always make the joke about if I'm designing a window detail and I didn't know what I was doing, is the guy that, or a girl that's going to install it really going to do it exactly how I drew it? Or are they going to do it how they've been doing it forever? You know, um, so why am I wasting the time, right? We're going to write a confirming RFI. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you <laughs> know, so it, yeah. that, that, that type stuff, I think, is if we were able to, and I think I even said when I was asked, like, what is the perfect workflow? It is one that allows those with the expertise to do what they're experts in. And, and that's simply that you know, we're working to, if, if we're ultimately trying to help an owner uh, learn how to um, get to a point where even they can deal with a digital twin, for instance, we've had guests come on and we've tried to define a digital twin. We, you know, I'm sure you and your firm and us here, we're all have our own definitions and own um, mantras for it. We're saying that to get there, it helps to have a culture that is sort of embracing this idea of continuous improvement, uh, you know, innovative culture. We, we're starting to look a little bit at how the design professional and the construction professional need to be able to work together to be able to educate the owner. So we're still talking about education, but it all comes down to data, right? So we're all collecting all of this data. It's kind of data overload. Where do we start? I mean, there's a lot of owners that aren't even sophisticated enough to know what to do with it. Uh, it may not even be what they need. You know, we had, what is the definition of a digital twin? It's whatever the owner or whoever needs it to be. So where do we start? Oof, that's a really, really heated question. Um, <laughs> I think um, we, I heard an interesting stat um, from Professor O'Day from Columbia University. And he said 95% of the data that we collect during a project is not used. Um, that's huge, right? So that means that we think we're doing a really good job collecting all this data and maybe we're collecting the right data for our processes and procedures, but we're not doing a great job in providing what the owner really needs to operate their facility. So um, 
I will say in my experience, we don't maybe bring the right people to the table at the right time for those discussions. So oftentimes, you know, even when my team gets brought in for what we call enhanced turnover services, it's, it's an afterthought, right? So we're not being brought in early enough to discuss with the teams that are going to operate those buildings, whether it's, you know, the facilities team um, or someone that's going to take over once the building is open, what do you really need? And again, we keep talking about education, but we have to educate ourselves as well. We can't just be making guesses and saying like, well, everyone needs a 3D representation of every piece of mechanical equipment, make, model, manufacture. Like that's going to be what it is. We have to understand, are they using Maximo? Are they using um, AIM? Like what is the system that they're using? And what are, what's the kit of parts that they have? Like we understand very well that we use Procore to do um, our RFIs, our, our submittals, our team orders, et cetera. But we don't maybe understand what their systems look like. And that could be cost systems. That could be, um, like I said, facility management, CMMS type programs. We need to fully understand that. Also, like who is going to be operating these types of digital twins, right? Whether that's 3D 2D, whatever, just data. Um, I, I think what we oftentimes find is that there might be a, a requirement for something 3D. It could be a Revit model. It could be like a Navisworks model at the end of the project with a bunch of data linked to it. But there might not be one person in-house on the side of the owner that can even open it. So what are they going to yeah. do with that? So just understanding and like trying to bite off, I think those little pieces uh, will help us paint a full picture so that we can deliver something. And and oftentimes probably going to help to define what the owner really needs. Um, I, we're working on a project right now where we're, we're trying to do that just internally uh, with our commercial development partners and look at what does digital twin mean? And like you said, it's something different to each person we encounter. And there's so many different avenues we could go. And so I think we're going to, our, our approach will be like to maybe like timeline it out and say within six months we could do this or maybe during design we could do this and during construction we could leverage a digital, digital twin this way and then post-construction we can leverage it these millions of ways um but I, did i answer your question I, I think there's a lot yeah and it still goes to education because you know we say 95 percent of the data doesn't get used so does that mean 95 percent is wrong or 95 percent doesn't know how to get used right. um uh, I think the idea of understanding sort of the owner's tech stack, I guess you could call it, uh, is something I don't think a lot of people are talking about because it's, you know, we're so focused on what is the product that we need to make us efficient, but we don't really think about the moment we hand it over. What does it get converted to? You know, what is it that they need? Uh, you know, so maybe it's, and, and is there, you know, is there a need to have some sort of industry standard requirement of what, a certain model is, you know, what is the information that a healthcare professional uses? We work, I worked at a firm that we managed all of the stand, I think it was like standards of conditions or statement of conditions for healthcare life safety for a hospital system. Um, and we, as the architect, helped manage it for them because they didn't have anyone on staff to do it, you know? So there could be whole professions that could come out of this companies that just help owners manage digital twins. Because is it cost effective for an owner to have, 
you know, the technology license and, and train and take someone out of industry? Or do they form really good relationships with you all? And maybe you have a whole department at Scanska that all you do is it's FM, you know, and it just manages the, the stuff. And so it seems like when we had these conversations, really a lot of these conversations about how to make our industry more efficient, or whatever, it all starts with this idea of education and communication. Uh, and it seems really simple, but understanding, you said in the very beginning, knowing what the end user needs to do. So if we know what the end user, who the end user is, then we know what the owner may need. They may not know what to ask for. And then you can backtrack from there instead of we always just start right at the beginning with the blank sheet of paper and start laying out the floor plan. Let's think about the very end, not just in terms of what are the spatial requirements, what are everything else? What is it that they're gonna need from a data perspective? Right, and I think it's expanding that definition of owner to what I said earlier, but beyond who's the person that we sit across from at the OAC meeting. Now, who is it? Is it a student that uses that facility? Is it you know an airport where you have people from all over coming through, people from different countries, um, you need to consider different languages. Like there's just so many things that we can, we can consider and I think make us all better if we we do think about the owner as that that broader owner right I think I think it makes a lot of sense because even internally we've talked about okay you know there's a lot of firms that we all have heard digital twin it's a buzzword now but it seems scary I don't know where to go and I talked about this idea of like mapping it out from the very beginning of adopting a piece of technology all the way to having a fully operable digital twin um, now where I stopped in that thought process was at the owner. I didn't think about the end user, but mapping that whole thing out. So it's like, okay, if, if this is your end goal is to create a digital twin, well, first, what does that mean to you? Okay. What are all the steps you need to take? Cause today it may simply just be getting into like a 3d environment. That may be all it is. Um, but understanding that that's step one to get to this ultimate goal of, of where you want to go. Uh, and I think for a lot of firms, whether they're even owners who are like, well, I'd love to have it. I don't know where to start. It's if we kind of map out the whole thing and understand, okay, well, what is it ultimately? What is the ideal state? What does that look like? And then what are some small incremental steps we can take today that help us build towards whatever that may be in the future? Mm -hmm. I think that definition at the end state is that, that's where I'm into, I'm actually intimidated because I'm like, okay, there's 3D models, there's sensors, there's, you know, maybe there's rendered views, there's this, there's, I mean, the, the list is endless. So like, how do we hone in on what is actually the digital twin that makes sense to, to that, you know, specific client or owner? Yeah, the, the last job I was on, we had a rule and I really like this rule and it was, if it's not in the model, and you're in the way of somebody who's in the bottle, you have to tear your stuff down. Because at the end of the day, what we wanted to provide was a true representation of what was going to really be there in real life in the model. And with the purpose of, um, you know, just making sure we're fully coordinated, everybody's prefabricating, you know, getting the building built as quickly as possible, but also the owner handover because it was a fairly advanced owner. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, whenever you're trying to create this digital twin, the goal is, or a model-based digital twin, you know, taking as-built from paper 
to the cloud, basically. Um, the goal is to make it as easy as possible for the facilities manager. And the thing is, is, you know, you brought up how early do we bring in the facilities manager in the process? Sometimes the owner doesn't even have that person hired until right before you get the certificate of occupancy. So they come in, they've got this nice, you know, clean new building and you got to show them where all the shutoff valves are and, you know, where the air handlers are, things like that. So how can you build a model that is equipped to that facilities manager? Because at the end of the day, you know, the guy in the suit who's sitting across from you in the OAC meeting may not care where the shutoff valve is. It's going to be the facilities manager. So like, how do you create something that is tailored exclusively for them while the whole project, you're trying to create something that's tailored to, you know, getting the job built as quickly as possible, not as quickly as possible, but, you know, within budget, in schedule, things like that. The end user may, so there's an end user of the building. There's an end user for, say, the digital twin and understanding both of their requirements and needs, I think, help. Uh, and so like, you know, we have a lot of owners that, um, know they, they should be doing this. They should be asking for this. They don't know where to go. You know, what would we say would be step one? Uh, what would be step one for an owner that is trying to step into this, uh, you know, the new way of doing thing, emerging technologies, what should step one be? Ooh, let's see. Step one should be, I think, just looking at their existing team and tech landscape and, and truly understanding that either that or understanding what the business needs are. And I, and I mean, business needs like, what are the people entering that building? What, what, what do they need to accomplish for that, those end users? Um, that would be what, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between those two, but maybe it's a combo. I like, I think based on everything I've heard, I think it starts with the end user still. Um, you know, and I'm sure an owner, most owners uh, are thinking about their end user, but I think they're thinking at it again, mainly from a spatial requirement like what do they need we need you know three icus and we need a bunch of prep rooms and some post-op that's what we need okay well what does that person actually need when they come in there okay well they need you know this this and this or they're going to have their data attached to them as an individual okay well does that information is there any importance of having that captured in conjunction with the building itself like do we need to know so-and-so was a patient in this area or is currently a patient in this area? You know, I mean, right. heaven forbid we saw something like the, the collapse of that condominium if, is having a digital twin and a better and having more data on the end user and maybe location. Does that help potentially? You know, I don't know. Um, it seems like, yeah, I think, but then I think the tech part is important because you can't get there without understanding the technology. Uh, documenting it. I mean, do we need to make sure we're documenting this information so that when we have conversations with our architects, our contractors, are we asking them? Or is it education? Yeah, I, I thought, I guess like my, my head went in two ways. So I was thinking of um, a facilities team on a project that I was working on. And what I heard from them was like, nobody ever brought me into the, the meeting 
we, they had a flood and a residential a tower. And the, the, at the end of the day, they found out that throughout the VE process, that, which they were not a part of, and now they're the, the people that are running the building, uh, they cut out shutout valves under each sink in every residential unit. And so there was one master shutout valve somewhere, you know, in the building, in the corridor. Um, but there, you know, was a flood and it affected several floors because the water filled up on one and then trickled down. But had there been that discussion or, you know, the right person brought into the room for that, or maybe even a digital twin, um, that could have solved a huge issue, right? So I, I thought of them and then I thought of, um, and then I thought of the, the end user in a different way. So two different types of end users, but maybe equally as important. So as we kind of wrap up, you know, again, we're, we're, the whole thing is we're, we're starting to have these conversations about how do we help our owners embrace this idea of digital twin? And it seems like it really goes back to the very first thing we started talking about of education. Um, and so, you know, as an industry, do we need to we also talked about how we're all kind of sheltered in our own little vacuums. So do we feel, do you feel like that is what's hindering us from being able to really help an owner? Do we need to break out of that? Do we need to have forums where architects and contractors can come together in sort of a non-contentious way and share best practices and share, you know, trade tips so that we can come to some level of consensus to then push that to the owner uh, do you think that is an area that we should focus on so that when it comes time, we can help better educate what an owner should be asking for, uh, what they should require? Yeah, I think uh, as you said that, I thought that maybe not just architects and contractors, but subcontractors, let's bring everyone together. And I think, you know, one thing that I always have to consider is let's not implement technology for technology's sake, Right. Let's all come together and talk through what we think is the problem that we're trying to solve, right? What's, why? Why are we, why does anyone care? Why does an owner care? And I think we could come up with some things like Jackson's idea of the sensor um, that automatically shuts off the valve because we don't want to risk losing, you know, finishes throughout an entire residential tower or, you know, several units stacked on top of each other. Um, so... I think we could do some sessions there that would help us to go to an owner with just a just better information, right? We're all, we've all talked, we've all collaborated. Now we have this really great idea of maybe what a digital twin could be and how it could help your benefit or benefit your business. And then let them tell us too. I, you know, I think um, let's put some ideas in their heads of problems that we could solve with this digital twin perhaps. And we've all come together and come up with these great ideas and like, well, what do you think? Um, and they might say, you're completely off your rockers. We don't, we don't agree with you. We don't know what you're talking about or it doesn't solve our problems. Um, but you know, maybe next step from that would be to then enlist our owner community and understand like what problems they need help solving that maybe a digital twin could solve, right? Um, so I kind of see it as a, a two-step process. How do we, you know, we get hung up on the cool, shiny toy, but at the end of the day, an owner has a job to do. Um, they're either running a business, they're operating a facility, or they're just turning it over to somebody else. Uh, but educating them 
seems so critical. Uh, otherwise, you, the three of us, are kind of wasting our time by pursuing all these digital twins if at the end of the day, 95% doesn't get used. Right. Um, and I guess maybe as a closing question, do you see, I mean, if we come together and we find out that the owners just don't see the same level of value, I mean, do you just give up on this digital twin journey or is there still enough that as an organization you still benefit from? I think there's still enough, but I, I don't want to get to where we were with like BIM for FM, I feel like was the first round of this, right? And so this is like digital twin is now, like you said, the new shiny object that we're, we're trying to attack. But I, I think, you know, from what I've seen, I have a couple thoughts on this. We need to create something that is simple for either an owner and user to use. And I, I think that's important for every client we work with. And I think of it a lot like my phone and having one app where I can access a bunch of things when I'm a tenant of that space, right? And that could be what ends up being the digital twin. Well, that's the user interface of what's happening behind the scenes as, as a digital twin, right? So I think if we can almost like oversimplify the end users, I guess, app, if you will, um, and, and focus on what we really need to get out of that, that twin, well, we could be successful. It just might not look like this like fancy model that you would spin on your phone. It just might be that like someone can, you know, call for their, their laundry or, uh, send it out. Right. Or call for an Uber, like all from the same place, um, or report sending a work order ticket, right. When something has gone wrong. And again, I'll go back to the residential tower, but um, there's something wrong in their unit, they need help, they need the facilities team to address it. As long as I can do that all from one place, I think we could be successful. And again, it doesn't need to be that they need to like spin the model, understand maybe that's something the facilities team needs to do. Maybe they don't even want to do that. Um, so I don't think we give up. I think we just look at maybe complexity, scale. Um, I think there's opportunities to do things that are really simple, like um, releasing, looking at this idea of digital twin in more like a virtual walkthrough experience with information tagged to it, like that could be a digital twin, right? And then you get more complex as you go. So I I'm not going to give up yet. Danielle, I appreciate you joining us. We've enjoyed the, enjoyed the chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production Copyright Applied Software 2021.